0: Today is the third and final sermon in the series, Walking Together. Today's words from scripture are attributed to Moses, who is saying farewell to the people that Moses has led, encouraging these people to remain faithful to God's way. Moses lays out for the people then options for their next steps, and Moses encourages them to choose life. Like the ancient people, you and I must also make choices about which way we will go in life. So listen for how God might be speaking to us from Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments, the Lord your God, that I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in God's ways, observing God's commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your hearts turn away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying God, and holding fast to God— For that means life to you in length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. May God bless this reading to our understanding. Just a few notes, and you and I knew something was different You and I were busy. We were passing the communion trays, serving one another those little bits of bread and those little cups of juice when we heard something different. Before Dr. Paul Tucker came to our church seven years ago, we were all accustomed to what happened during communion. We would hear what we called on the organ an improvisation. It was beautiful It was quiet. It was meditative. It was lovely. But when Paul sat down that first Sunday to play the piano during communion, something happened. Something came alive in us. Afterwards, folks were saying, what was that song? I I thought I heard a hymn, but then I heard a different hymn, and then it ended on a different tune. What was that layering of the music? We didn't quite know, but we knew how we felt that day. It was as if while we were taking communion, the music paused within us and made us hold our breath. It was ethereal, and I used to tell Paul sometimes after a funeral, Paul, you brought the spirit into the room this day we were catapulted out of the ordinariness of our lives and into the holy presence of something divine. So we know that there's music and then there is music. There is life and then there is life. You know, when we think that life is really great, we sometimes call it the good life. Or we might describe it as a very meaningful life. That's the word we use in our tagline, a meaningful life. We're moving towards a meaningful life. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, the book of Timothy calls it the life that really is life. And Jesus calls it in the Gospel of John, life abundant. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And Moses, when speaking to the people of Israel, In the passage that we read this morning says, Choose life. Choose life over death, choose blessings over curses. What is this life that we are talking about, and how do we make of it a life of meaning? Not long ago, I read a true story about a young man named John who was 17 years old in Nashville, Tennessee when he was incarcerated because he was stealing a car and using a weapon in the midst of the crime. After leaving prison, he moved into a halfway house and he was Part of his sentence was to do mandatory community service, and he went to a nearby food kitchen, and he showed up, and Ann, a volunteer at the food kitchen, set before him four dozen eggs, a big pile of stale bread, a whisk, and a recipe, and said, "'Make bread pudding, John. Make it for a hundred.'" Well, John had never cooked anything in his life. His mother would always tell him when he passed through the kitchen, get out of the kitchen, John, you're going to break something. Now John himself was a broken man, and all he wanted to do that day at the food kitchen was to be assigned to sweep or to mop skills that he had mastered while he was in prison. But he didn't want to cook. He didn't know how to use a whisk. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He didn't want to be engaged. But that day... John gave something. He contributed. And long after his mandatory community service ended, John kept coming to the food kitchen for months, for years, to volunteer because there, in the midst of community, and in the process of giving of himself, John found life. We know what that's like. We know what it's like to be in a community and find life. We know what it's like to be a servant, to have the opportunity to give to someone else and to find life. Others of us find life in pouring ourselves into our family. The younger generation today, they will say, I don't want to do more billable hours. I wanna go to my kid's soccer game. I wanna tuck my kid into bed at night. I want the life that comes with being with my family. Other folks find life in freedom. The children are grown, time to travel, time to explore the world, life. Other folks find life in nature. They take up bird watching or hiking or being out in the pond fishing. Other folks find life in, and and I've tried this, and I did not find life there in running. (laughs) Or maybe in biking or swimming, yoga. We find life in taking care of the gift of our bodies and nourishing our body with healthy food. Other folks find life through the intellect, exploring history or philosophy or poetry or scripture or religion. What is the life that really is life? What is it that makes life meaningful. In the scriptures, Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt. Well, that was no life there, making bricks as slaves. So he leads them out across the Red Sea so that they are no longer slaves of the brutal dictator Pharaoh, Moses leads the people into the wilderness, and it doesn't look like life at first, but they are fed bread from heaven, manna they call it. And there they are given a way of life, the Ten Commandments. And now Moses leads them right up to the edge of the promised land, the place where God has promised they will really find life. But before they go in, Before they receive their inheritance, Moses pauses and Moses gives them one final speech. And in the speech, Moses says, choose life. He must have known that they might choose death. They might be so burned out, so frustrated. Maybe they were depressed. Maybe they were afraid to go into this new and unknown place Why would Moses at this point tell them to choose life? Is there a way in which the people Moses has rescued, the people that Moses has delivered, the people that God has traveled with, now might be tempted to just settle for death? In his recent book, Professor Andrew Root talks about how sometimes communities of people can become So lifeless, it just feels deadly. The people in the community lose hope that things are ever going to get better. They think we've tried everything before. It never helps. The people just give up that they can actually make a difference in the world. This happens in churches. Not long ago, a few years ago, I was in Arkansas. I visited this beautiful church building. Gorgeous rose stained glass window beautiful woodwork, and then I ordered a cocktail because you know what? It's now a restaurant, not a church anymore, and I could just feel in there some people gave up, threw in the towel. The church died. Root says that the real tragedy is that some churches stop living long before they close their doors and call it over. How do we, as a group of people, choose life? Root says that individual people do this too. Maybe you've buried a loved one who really died before they died. I mean, Alzheimer's came and robbed them of their intellect, or a stroke came and robbed them of their mobility. And when the time came to plan the funeral, someone said, are you sad? And you say, well, we kind of lost her. Years ago, bit by bit, she died before she died. But sometimes we die before we die, and it's not because of illness or disease. It's just because we quit choosing life. Root uses this image, which meant something to me. He said, think of life as an orchestra pit. Someone is sitting in the orchestra pit playing the violin. It's beautiful. And suddenly she dies and she's gone. And we call it tragic because just a moment ago, she was so full of life. She was laughing. She was vital. She was contributing. She was smiling. And she's gone. Life ends. But other times, there's this person sitting in the orchestra pit, not even picking up her instrument, not even holding on to the chance. That, too, is tragic. So how do we as individuals and how do we as a church choose life? How do we engage in a life that is filled with greater meaning? How can we invite other people into this journey if we're not clear about what it is? When Moses says, choose life, it is a tall order. Moses invites the people not just to follow those Ten Commandments, you know, do not steal, tell the truth, all those things. Moses invites the people to follow an entire way of life. At this farewell speech, Moses looks back and he sees everything that has happened in their lives up to this point is evidence that God chose these people. God embraced these people. God loved these people. God rescued these people. God claimed these people. And so the real summons that Moses makes this day is for them to respond to the love that God has already claimed them with. But Moses knows that there is a real possibility that their hearts will turn, that their backs will turn, that they will walk away from God. As one writer puts it, death is a slow process of giving ourselves away to that which does not matter. How many times do we spend our days on that which does not matter? That is how our lives become devoid of meaning. When I was a teenager, my life was just about as storybook as they come. I had great parents. I went to a great school. I had plenty of friends. We, We were not wealthy, but we had everything that a teenage person needs to grow up well. One day, I was at church, and my youth minister handed me a paperback book, I took that little novel home, and I devoured it. It was a coming-of-age story about two young teenage boys trying to discern the purpose of their lives. I loved that book so much that I began reading every other book that that particular author wrote. Now, if you ask me today, what, what was the plot? What were the details? I cannot recount them, but I can tell you how I felt when I was reading those books. I was somehow transported. There was this feeling that was indescribable when I was absorbed in that book, and it was because of that book that I fell in love with literature. Now, fast forward 10 years. I'm in graduate school. I'm dragging into the library one night with a backpack full of books, trying to write papers and study for exams, and I see this little sign in the hallway on the way to the library that says, Chaim Potok will speak here in the auditorium tonight at 7, and I ditched my backpack in the library and I ran to the auditorium to get a front row seat to see this author who had changed my life when I was a teenager speak in person. It was a magical moment because since that first book, I have read hundreds, maybe thousands of works of fiction, and you could say that I chose to read, or you could say that my youth minister chose to give me that book, and I simply responded. The 20th century theologian Karl Barth was born in Europe He came of age between World War I and World War II, a very tumultuous time for everyone in Europe, but particularly for church leaders and theologians. Barth's massive tomes of Christian theology have widely influenced worldwide Christian theology and still do to this day. Barth recalls that when he was only five or six years old, he was in the family home one day And his father was messing around on the piano, and he went and stood next to his father, next to the piano bench. And his father began to play a piece of Mozart called the Magic Flute. Carl said that at this moment, the music went into him. It went through him. He felt something holy. It was a moment that he never forgot his entire career. It was a moment that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loved the world, that God chose humanity. He he was haunted by this moment of God's spiritual revelation, God's transcendence, God's power. And near the end of his career, he wrote a newspaper article and he said, if I ever arrive at heaven's gate, the first person that I will want to see is Mozart. Mozart, not a theologian, Mozart, the one through whose music he was transported to a life with greater meaning. God, you see, is not forcing us to choose a life of greater meaning. God is inviting us instead to respond to God's great love for us. God is not some kind of puppeteer sending you and I a script that we can follow to get through life. God is not even promising that if we choose this way, that our lives will be full of ease But God does break into our ordinary lives with a divine presence, a transcendent presence that enables us to see that life is meaningful. Do you know that Paul Tucker almost didn't play the piano? He and his twin brother used to mess around on the keyboard in their family home in Jamaica, just a little keyboard. But their dad thought that they had some potential, so their dad went to the church and bought a real piano, and their mother signed Paul and his twin brother up for piano lessons with Mrs. Jones. But Paul and his brother, when it came time to go to the piano lessons after school, preferred most days to go play sports. They like to play soccer and cricket, and so many days, Mrs. Jones sat there at the piano waiting for those boys who never showed up. After a year or so of this, Mrs. Jones sat down with the family and the boys and explained that she had a rigid method for learning piano, that they would need to master certain pieces, that they would need to practice, that they would need to come to her lessons, and they all agreed. Paul and his brother nodded yes yes but they didn't do it. (laughs) A few years passed, and when Paul was about 16, one of his friends said, you know, you could take piano lessons from my teacher. And so they went to Mrs. Pang's house, and she asked Paul and his brother to sit down and play a little bit. She was so amazed at their talent, at the beautiful way they played the piano, that she called a friend to come over and listen to them play. And then she said to the boys, well, if I was going to teach you, what would you want me to teach you? And what time of day would you want to come for the lesson? Now, Paul will not want me to tell you this, but Mrs. Pang was stunningly beautiful. (laughs) And Paul said, is this really the teacher? And after that, Paul and his brother were immersing themselves into piano lessons, into regularly practicing and showing up on time for their lessons until Mrs. Pang had taught them everything she knew, and she passed them off to her teacher. Now, would you say that Paul chose piano? Or could it be that Paul heard God's invitation to life? Moses knew, we all know, our hearts as human beings are fragile. We can go either way. We can love God and follow in God's ways, or we might choose death. The choice that was theirs is the choice that is ours.